HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Luisa Shafia, like Mafia. That's how you pronounce it, right? Beautifully said, Michael. <laughs> I kept on saying that over and over in my head, and I was worried that I was going to introduce gonna myself mafia. as Mafia. Right? Yeah. But we got that we got that down, and now, now we're going to learn a little about you. Um, I met you, I think I actually met you prior to the time that I think I met you. But most recently, I ran into you at Porcena Extra Bar, Sarah Jenkins, wonderful uh, pasta restaurant in the East Village, because you have this wonderful pop-up called Lock Lock. I was having flavors, combinations of textures, uh, uh, things that seemed very familiar, but felt kind of foreign to me. And it just blew my mind. I mean, some of the... You know, dishes have kind of stuck with me in a way that most dishes haven't in the past few years. Oh, that's great. Um, wow. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. I remember growing up with certain spices, you know, certain, you know, things during holidays like haroset. And I'm flipping through your book, The New Persian Kitchen, and I find Passover haroset in there. I'm like, yeah, I know that. I grew up with that, you know, this salty, sweet thing. Um, but what does it have to do with... Persian cuisine. Boom. Surprise. Jews have been in Iran forever. Yeah. <laughs> which no one seems to know and which I actually didn't fully realize the scope of the presence of Jews in Iran until I researched the cookbook. And I learned that uh, 
Jews have been in Iran. It's the place that they've been the longest outside of Israel. Yeah, like 2,500 years. Yeah. And so obviously there's a big contribution to the cuisine, to the culture. And it's so incongruous now because, well, the Muslim world is not exactly welcoming to Jews anymore in the Middle East. But there are still some Jews in Iran, much, much less so. But there's still a great tradition of um, Jews making Persian food. And so Haroset, they have their own amazing Persian take on it. Yeah, I mean, there are so many similarities, though. Uh, you see a picture of Gondi, and tell me if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. Well, I, okay, a lot of the pronunciations I'm kind of guessing because I did not grow up speaking Farsi. Yeah. I only went to Iran for the first time last year. Yeah. Um, so I think Gondi sounds great. Yeah, <laughs> but it looks like matzo balls. I mean, it, in a sense, is matzo balls, but with a little bit of a twist. They serve the exact same purpose as matzo balls for Iranian Jews. It's... Uh, it's a soup, and the matzo balls, quote-unquote matzo balls, are made from chickpea flour and ground chicken. And it's they're seasoned with turmeric and cardamom. And they have this really great light texture. They just float in the soup. And, um, you know, traditionally they're eaten on Friday night for Shabbat dinner. Yeah, I mean, I think that word light or lightness kind of explains what I experienced. Not that I was becoming lightheaded, but sitting at Lock Lock, having this food, it just floated. It just was kind of, you know, almost ethereal in this way that, again, it was so simple, yet so structured. And I feel like that's, that's you know, the, the, the foundation of Persian cuisine and also how it's influenced the world. Because a lot of people don't know that you know, the word or term Persian is Iranian. Yeah. Why is that, you know, rift there? So Persia is the word that the Greeks gave to Iran way back when. And since we get our history from Greece, we, everyone in the West just has always referred to it as Persia. But Iranians have always been calling themselves Iranian and calling the country Iran. It's like Germans calling, you know, Germany Germany, but they've actually, they call it Deutschland. So it's the exact same thing. And so in the 20s, I believe the Iranian government said, actually, we want to be called, we want to be referred to in in official ways as as Iran. And that was it. Um, I think of the difference between when people say Iranian and Persian. One is sort of more technical. Iranian is like, okay, this refers to this area. Persian it has sort of a wider reference. It refers to the culture, you know, Persian poetry, Persian food. Um, the Prince of Persia. It was some weird computer <laughs> video game that I know was big during my, you know, middle high school career. Yeah, and made into a yeah. film not that yeah. long ago <laughs> with someone who should have been a Persian actor. Yeah. It was Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> um, so I actually switch off between saying Iranian and Persian because I feel like they both have a use, but there is no place called Persia yeah. anymore. It's it's just called Iran. So I laugh sometimes when people say, well, in Persia, you know, you can't get this. And yeah, that's because Persia doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, what was so Persian about Philadelphia in the 70s? Uh, my dad. <laughs> <laughs> so my dad came to the U.S., in the 60s, actually before the Shah, you know, the the person who ran Iran before the Muslim 
uh, revolution. So my dad came to the U.S. to practice medicine, and my mom is a native Philadelphian, so they got married. I grew up in Philadelphia, but I always had this very exotic element to my life, which was having an Iranian father. So, you know, sometimes we would have my family come visit us from Iran, which was just completely mind-blowing. I mean, you know, they would bring spices. My Aunt Mally would cook all day. We would just kind of sit around and enjoy life instead of, you know, running around like normal people do on the East Coast and, you know, just rushing from school to appointments to whatever. Um, And they just had a completely different way about them. I remember my mom saying, you know, don't, don't compliment anyone on what they're wearing because they'll take it off and they'll give it to you. <laughs> and it's a really a true thing. If oh, you... so I can go shopping in, in Iran just by saying, I dig your shirt. Totally. <laughs> but then you'll owe people something. Yeah. You won't know what until yeah. <laughs> later. But yeah, so I always had this sort of window into that culture growing up. And we would go to big... Um, gatherings at no ruse which is the persian new year which happens on march 21st the spring equinox every year so we would go to this big persian feast once a year with tons of iranians all over the philadelphia area and just kind of stuff ourselves on rice and lamb and you know saffron and ice cream and all the things that you eat at big iranian gatherings but i didn't know it all that well but when i started to cook professionally i I never went into my career as as a chef thinking I was going to get into Persian food. I've always been into healthy cooking, and I was vegan and vegetarian for a really long time. And then when I was cooking out in San Francisco, the chef at the restaurant where I was working asked me to develop a, a new dish for the menu. And I thought, oh, I really I want to blow everyone's minds and do something no one's ever done here before. And so I just kind of thought, well, oh, I should do something Persian. And I thought of fesenjun, which is the really iconic stew of, it's a sauce of ground walnuts and pomegranate molasses. So it's sweet and savory and kind of tart. And it usually goes with chicken or duck. And we, you know, we did a vegetarian version because it was a vegetarian restaurant. But I just started playing around with those flavors and I realized, oh my God, this stuff is amazing. And most people don't even know about it. I personally had never cooked with pomegranate molasses before I did that little experiment in San Francisco. And uh, so that, that was just kind of my, my gateway dish. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about those ingredients, especially pomegranate molasses and dried limes and rose petals. Uh, I feel like the first time you have a lot of those, they're, they're medicinal because, you know, uh, or they're grandmotherly. I remember my grandma used to have violet chowards. Uh, you know, little candies in their bag all the time. And I would taste that and I'd be like, this is disgusting. It's it's like having perfume. But now I like those flavors. Now now I like something that is that kind of, you know, floral, aromatic. And I mean, the basis of Persian cuisine are all those wonderful notes. I mean, you, you said you have only recently gone back to Iran do you smell all those things? Do you see all those things in that country? Oh, yeah. Well, food in Iran is amazing. I mean, we talk about local and seasonal here. 
I mean, there you don't have to try to do it. It's just how people still eat. So I went from May through June, and that was the season when all the flowers are blooming in Iran. They kind of get um, their summer earlier than we do. So when I left in late June, I was starting to get really hot. But um, there were people at all the bazaars, the the traditional marketplaces where, you know, you can buy anything from clothes to food to, you know, gold jewelry. There were people at the bazaars selling freshly picked rose petals from the countryside. Orange blossoms were in season. Someone gave me a gift of fresh dried orange blossoms from Shiraz, the city of Shiraz. Um, I went with my cousin, Parvane, which means butterfly in Farsi. We went to the bazaar and we bought fresh grape leaves to go home and make stuffed grape leaves. And that's the time to get them is in May when they're young and tender. And, you know, later than that, they're not so good. It's just actually I I stayed with my Aunt Melly, who's the woman who my dad's sister who came to visit me in Philly when when I was little and really kind of planted this seed in my brain of what Persian food is because she came and cooked for us. So I stayed with her in Tehran and in the courtyard of her apartment building, we picked mulberries off the mulberry tree. You know, we just picked them right off. We washed them. We ate them that afternoon. And that's a normal thing to do in Iran. It's to walk around and pick stuff off of trees. And it's so funny. I came back and the mulberries were in season here in Williamsburg, and they were all just falling on the ground. So <laughs> on my way to the gym every day, I would try and pick as many as I could. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad to know that there are mulberries in, in Williamsburg because, you know, sometimes you worry about the replicability of, of you know, certain cuisines. How, how do they transport? Um, how do they translate? And being able to have certain ingredients, obviously we have nice beets and carrots in the Northeast. We have really good yogurt in this country now. Yeah. but saffron, even fantastic pomegranates, pistachios, prunes and apricots. Where nationally did you go to find these ingredients and, you know, really be able to research and develop these recipes? Well, I had wanted originally to research this book in Iran, but getting my documentation to go was very complicated and took a really long time. And, uh, I, I put in my application and they said, oh, you're not going to get this for at least, a, you know, at least a year. And I was so depressed because I need I, I thought this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go write my book about Persian food and I'm going to research it in Iran. And so that dream came crashing down and I was really depressed for a week. And then a friend said, why don't you just go out to Los Angeles, a.k.a. Tehrangelis, which is. <laughs> the second largest population of Iranians in the whole world outside of Iran. And I thought, oh, yeah, duh. And, of course, I have a lot of extended family out there. So I went out there, and apparently L.A. and Iran are on the same latitude. They have very similar weather, um, you know, cold at night and warm in the day. But you could basically, you could get everything out there not only were a lot of ingredients just grown out there like pistachios and almonds and pomegranates but because there's such a big iranian population there's all kinds of markets and restaurants that you know import stuff from iran so it was just bliss and i went out there i went to irvine which is um you know a little bit south of la and i went to this wonderful grocery store called wholesome choice and it was like being in a museum it was every Iranian ingredient you could imagine. 
and most of them I didn't even know. So I just went crazy going down the aisles and buying everything that looked interesting. So it, that worked out really beautifully. So you can you can get everything you need to make Iranian food in the U.S., but you know a lot of it might just need to come from the West Coast. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back, and explain what to do with those wonderful ingredients and how to open up a pom- pomegranate. Oh, great. That's fun. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hey, welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here again with Louisa Shafia, like mafia. I keep on having to say that in my head just to make sure. Um, Pomegranates. I'm a water method guy. Tell me how you open yours up. Hmm. Sure. I respect the water method, but I don't practice it myself. So what I like to do, say I'm at a restaurant and I have a bunch of pomegranates to seed. What I like to do is slice off the very top, score all the way around the outside and break the pomegranate into two halves. Then take the pomegranate, put it seed side down so my the seeds are right against my palm. Hold it over a bowl and then whack the back of it with a really heavy spoon. And then all the seeds kind of fall into your hand and then into the bowl. If they don't, if you had the pomegranate facing the other way, you would basically be whacking the seeds and destroying them. So this method works really well. You have to go through and kind of clean out some bits of pith afterwards, but it's really fast and really effective. Now, when I was in L.A., my cousin's husband showed me a way to open pomegranates. That was mind-blowing. I'd never seen this before. He basically peeled the whole outside like an apple. He used a knife and peeled it. He scored it and broke it into sections and then just put it on a serving platter like you would put sections of orange. So then it wasn't up to, you know, the cook to seed all of them, you kind of distribute the work because you give it to your guests and you go, here you go, 
eat this and you you take the seeds out yourself but it looks really beautiful yeah so i, mean, I love to do that too i i love that interactive you know feature of of presenting the pomegranate that way and letting people kind of pick it apart because you were talking about Nauru's before the persian new year big celebration and uh from what i've read in this book a lot of these foods are celebratory and Nauru's is kind of like purim too not to relate it back to the jews but it it, it has a lot of you know fun to it you know a lot yes. of uh, party aspects it's not just you know whatever religion you know praise whoever I mean, you're there with friends and family enjoying life. Oh, yeah. It's the highlight of the year. It's it's the time to celebrate. It's the time to be with friends and family. And in Iran, the whole thing lasts 13 days, which just gives you a sense of sort of how different the culture is out there. It's very much about enjoying life and sort of being present. But, yeah, the food is an essential aspect of it. And pomegranates are just a, such a beautiful food and they're they're always just this iconic part of any s- celebration they find themselves at porcena at lock lock at the pop-up yes so first of all how did this start how did you meet sarah how did this collaboration begin well i uh did my book release in the san francisco bay area And because I just know a lot of people out there and all the food, all the ingredients are, you know, that you want to make Persian food are out there. So I did the book launch out there and then um, I came back to New York and I was thinking, where could I do an author dinner? You know, a dinner where a restaurant features the recipes from the cookbook. And people told me, oh, Sarah Jenkins at Porcena is really up for doing that. So I reached out to her. She was super cool and receptive and she's really into middle eastern food even though the restaurant is an italian restaurant and she said let's do it so we did a dinner it went really well it was really fun um i love her kitchen staff the chef um sal salona is awesome and then later that year we did a persian hanukkah dinner and that was a big success lots of people came we got a lot of attention and then when I got back from my month in Iran, I really thought, how am I going to share all the things that I learned over there with people? I'm not going to, you know, race to write another cookbook. What could I do that I could really share, the, you know, what I learned with people? Because I had gone around the country cooking with as many people as I could in different regions of Iran. So I asked Sarah if she would want to do a weekly pop-up dinner in the extra bar, in the wine bar. And she said, yeah, let's try it out and see how it goes. And... It's just really picked up momentum, and it's, it's been such a wonderful partnership. I love working with Sarah. You know, I'm the one that's been to Iran, but I always I love to get her take on things. She, you know, she, when we put fish on the menu, she always chooses like a great, sustainable, locally caught fish that will work really well. It's it's a great collaboration. Some of the menu items, and again, I apologize if my pronunciation is off, but. Sabzi cordon. Uh, it's a simple herb and cheese plate with bread. But it's nothing like you've ever had before here in the States or in an Italian or American restaurant. Tell me what makes that a little bit different. Sure. So Sabzi cordon, edible herbs. This is a classic part of any Persian meal. Anywhere you go in Iran, you're going to get that platter. Feta cheese, herbs, and some flatbread. And it just sits on the table throughout the meal. You just kind of snack on it in between bites of whatever else you're eating. 
probably stew and rice. Um, so the way that I make it is we have really great feta cheese. And then I make a little topping where I toast coriander, caraway, and cumin seeds whole. While they're still hot, I put them in olive oil, and then I just kind of drizzle that over the feta cheese right before it gets served. And so that's not a traditional thing, but those are all spices that are used in Iran, just in different ways. So I love to incorporate that. And then the fun thing at at Porcena is um, (coughs) one of the first nights of Lach Lach, an Iranian guy came in and he tasted the bread that we were serving. We had um, a nice thin lavash bread. And he said, this meal is good, but it could be better. And I rolled my eyes. I thought, oh, God, typical Iranian. They come in and criticize what you're doing. And he's like, no, I get this bread from an Armenian bakery on Long Island called Mount Ararat. I've been going there for 30 years. You must serve the bread from there. So I said, okay, if you want to bring it in to me, you know, get it from Long Island. We'll totally serve it. So he went out. He brought me these beautiful loaves of barberi bread which is a classic Iranian bread. It's a flat bread, but it's puffy. It has seams, and it's topped with nigella seeds, little black seeds that taste like onion. And lo and behold, he was right. The bread is so good. So that's what we've been serving from now on. Yeah, I mean, it's it's mind-blowing, and I can just have that dish over and over and over again. And Some people come in, and they'll have it to start with their meal, and then they will literally order it for dessert just because the feta cheese is so creamy and the whole thing is just so rich and satisfying but you got to save room for sam boucher sam boucher sam boucher yeah i mean it, it it's pretty much like a turnover it's, it's like a pastry a savory pastry it's a samosa basically so the story of how i tasted those was i went down to the persian gulf when i was in iran and i cooked with a family with this wonderful woman named mitra who's an amazing cook and um the Persian Gulf, as you might imagine, it's all about seafood. So we cooked shrimp and we cooked fish and we cooked all day. And then at night when it was cool enough to go outside before I was leaving town, we went right down to the Gulf. We went to the beach and we went to a little store right on the beach and we bought these little crispy phyllo triangles and uh, they were filled with ground <coughs> lamb and they came with a spicy tomato sauce. And, and I said, what are these called? And they said, sambuse. I had never heard of these. This was totally beyond my concept of what Persian food is. Um, but they were delicious. And, you know, right down there, you're right near Pakistan. You're right near India. So there's so many things in common. So it's just a different version of a samosa. And I don't know where the original one came from, if it came from Iran, if it came from India, what. But it was delicious. So no one told me how to make those. But when <laughs> I came back, I just thought, I need to recreate those. Recreate those. They're, they're so delicious. And... Um, you know, they taste like they're fried, but they're actually baked. But they give you, you know, they're that fun, crispy texture, which makes you feel like you're eating junk food. So I said, we, this has to be part of my lock lock yeah. menu. And they're wonderfully versatile, too, because I think I've had them with veggies and lentil. And you serve them with butternut. And again, you said, yeah. you know, ground lamb. So they can really anything have anything. in them. We do cauliflower and walnut. We do butternut squash. You can do a, a nice mild cheese. Yeah, they're just a great little receptacle for anything. Vehicle. Kebabs are obviously a huge part of Persian food. Yes. And I think I've had both chicken and lamb most recently there yeah. uh, at Lok Lok. Um, tell me about that, you know, wonderful, almost finger food. Yeah. So in Iran, 
kebab is what you find in restaurants. It's not really what people make at home because it's, you know, you have to do it outside and it's a little bit messy. And plus the dishes that people make at home are much more time consuming, like these is detailed stews like the one I was describing fest in June or rice that has, you know, carrots and um, pistachios and saffron in it, things like that. So, but when you go out, you have kebab. So one of the street foods that I had in Tehran was jigar, which is lamb liver. It's a grilled lamb liver and it is so incredibly delicious. And it's served with some lavash bread, some flatbread and some fresh herbs. And so you take a piece of the grilled lamb liver, you stuff it into the bread, you, you put some herbs in there and that's how you eat it. Um, my very last day in Iran, I was out at my cousin's country house. A lot of people that live in Tehran have a place out in the country because Tehran's really crowded and can be polluted. And um, her husband made us a wonderful meal of kebabs. It was juje kebab, which is chicken kebab that's marinated in saffron, turmeric, onions, and garlic. And it's just wonderful and tender and has just a sort of sweet taste. And... Um, that's what that's what we had. And then when I was in the north of Iran by the Caspian Sea, I had torsh e kebab, which is lamb, chunks of lamb marinated in ground walnuts and pomegranate molasses. So it's sweet and tart. So those are kind of the three that I do a lot at Lok Lok. But I've also experimented with fish, you know, fish marinated in saffron. Actually, this coming Monday, we're going to do a shrimp kebab which is a, you know, a real thing that they have in the Persian Gulf. So, yeah, it's, it's a really fun uh, thing to experiment with. And on your menu, you almost always see rice. Rice with barberries, crispy shallots. I mean, it, it is a staple of the Persian diet. Yes. So in, in Persian food, rice is just kind of this blank palate waiting for you to fill it up with fun things. So there's certain really classic rice combinations like rice with fava beans and dill, rice with sour cherries and almonds. They're, they're classic things that people have been making for, you know, literally hundreds, if not thousands of years in Iran. So I like to make all different versions of those and ones maybe that people haven't had so much. Uh, or that you won't find on a Persian menu in the U.S., like adas polo, which is rice with lentils and raisins, um, which actually I learned recently is considered peasant food <laughs> in Iran. Um, but yeah, it's and, you know, the way that we always finish the rice is I'll take some saffron. This is the way to prepare saffron in Iran. And saffron is an essential part of serving rice. You take your saffron, you grind it up so it's a powder. You can grind it up with a little bit of sugar or salt to just kind of help it grind down. And then you steep it in a warm liquid. It could be either water, it could be butter, it could be cream. But you let it steep and you let it sit somewhere warm. And uh, that, that really brings out the flavor and the color. Since you're working you know, with such an expensive ingredient, you obviously want to get the most out of it. So once it's been sitting and steeping for at least a half an hour, when your rice comes off the stove, then you take that saffron water that or that mixture and you fold it into your rice. So it's spread all throughout the rice and it gives it just kind of this mild golden color. But you can taste it. It's, it's really mellowed out. It's not overly strong because if you have too much saffron, it can be metallic. But that's really the right way to 
to work with saffron. That it makes sense now to you know finish a meal with pistani nuni. You know you have that saffron ice cream, and the carrier is the cream, and it extends itself, and it's such a wonderful way to kind of remind and reset your palate. Mm, I love that. So pistani nuni. I'll just explain what that is. That is an ice cream sandwich, and. It's a real thing that you'll find in Iran. Iran is actually famous for having amazing, rich, creamy ice creams, often flavored with saffron and rose water. And you'll basically take a a scoop or two of this creamy ice cream and you'll put it between two biscuits and eat it like an ice cream sandwich. And what we've been doing at Lach Lach, well, now it's gotten cold, so we're not doing it, but I'm sure we'll bring it back in the spring, is um, taking a, um, oh, gosh, a pizzelle mold, you know, which is a pizzelle is an Italian dry kind of cookie. Hand making our um, sandwich biscuits in the pizzelle mold and flavoring them with a little bit of cardamom, a little bit of uh, orange blossom water. And so we have these nice, fresh, thin waffles that we put on the outside of our ice cream sandwich. And so mm, with, the, with the pistachio ice cream or the saffron ice cream in between, it's just amazing. See, if you haven't been to Lock Lock, surely go. You can also check out Luisa's wonderful work at lucidfood.com. And, of course, get the new Persian kitchen cookbook. But I also want to talk about a new little venture that you're working in that extends. Well, it's still in the kitchen, but it, it's more than just food. Uh, kitchen textiles. Yes. So just this past year, I launched Magpie Cook Shop with a dear friend of mine and... What we sell is sort of sustainable textiles for the kitchen. So aprons, tea towels, reusable bowl covers, lunch bags, and everything is made from hemp and organic cotton and, you know, things you can feel good about. Because what's deeply important to me, aside from delicious tasting food, is also cooking and um, just working with food in a way that's sustainable and respectful to the environment. My first book, Lucid Food, was all about sort of eco-friendly cooking and um, seasonal food. So that is carrying into this new project. So um, yeah, we are actually going to be selling a new Persian spice kit on there as well. Um, Everything is coming from a place called the Oaktown Spice Shop in Oakland in the Bay Area. And it's really fresh, freshly ground uh, spices. And it's everything that you would need to cook from the new Persian kitchen, like turmeric and saffron and cardamom and all that good stuff. Thank you so much. I mean, again, Persian is Iranian, and I'm glad you're introducing it. that part of the world, which often is shut off from, you know, our, our American eyes and palates. And th- this, we're lucid to it now. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, well, I feel like it's time we we got to know those wonderful flavors, and hopefully things are going to open up in Iran, and maybe, who knows, one day uh, the U.S. and Iran will be friends. Until then, there's always Lock Lock pop-up. Thank you again, Louisa. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.